Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, bilingual education returns to Massachusetts. How the Bay State is continuing to help the people of Puerto Rico. And Coco hits box office gold, the latest Latinx news you need to know. Later in the show, comedy is funny, but the comedy business is no joke. Author Michael Jeffrey spent more than a year interviewing comedians, club owners, and bookers to reveal the world of comedy. Behind the Laughs, Community and Inequality in Comedy is our December selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me in the studio, Julio Ricardo Varela, co-host of the In the Thick podcast, Latino USA contributor and founder of Latino Rebels. Welcome back, Julio. Hey, Callie. And Marcella Garcia, bilingual journalist and editorial writer, columnist and editorial board member for the Boston Globe. Hello again, Marcella. Hi, Callie. All right, we're going to jump right into the bilingual education bill that just got passed by the Massachusetts legislature. I think over the years, we three have had a discussion about the impact of the former policy, Mm -hmm. which left a lot of people in the lurch. And now they're talking about a new approach, which is kind of an old approach, but looking to tailor these lesson plans for more than 90,000 students. I want people to understand how many students are at play here in Massachusetts who are not fluent in English and uh, are referred to as English language learners. So first, let's get your take on what do you think about the new policy? So for me, this has been pretty much 15 years in the making, right after Massachusetts residents through the ballot passed this so-called bilingual education ban, there had been efforts in the legislature to reverse that ban and to bring back the status quo. There's always been, I mean, the issue with that is, one, there was always this conflation between bilingual education and immigration issues, right? Mm -hmm. So there was always that barrier there. And then the other thing is that data show that bilingual education wasn't also doing a great job. But it wasn't bilingual education. It was the way it was implemented, right? Mm -hmm. So year after year, Representative Jeffrey Jeffrey Sanchez Sanchez, filed bill after bill Mm -hmm. after bill after bill, and he never, ever, ever went anywhere. And so then, lo and behold, this year, and I mean, I can't help but make the connection that the year in which Jeffrey Sanchez got a promotion to, Mm, you know, the chair. I hadn't thought about that. No, I mean, you can't help but wonder. I mean, this bill sat there and, you know, different iterations of the bill sat there just like a sack of rotten potatoes in the legislature. And then the year where Jeffrey Sanchez gets a promotion, like the farthest a Latino has gotten in the legislature, that position, as you know, is the chair of Ways and Means, comes with a lot of power because they control the budget, they Mm -hmm. control the money. And so he is now pretty much the closest legislator to DeLeo. And as you know, he calls the shots, basically. And so then this year, this is when this happens. So, of course, I can't help but connect the dots. And to me, obviously, beyond the impact that this has as an education policy, 
in the large population of English language learners, it's also an example of how representation does matter. Mm -hmm. You know, the mm -hmm. fact that someone like Jeffrey Sanchez is at that level, that means that there are conversations happening, you know, at the highest level right. of power in Massachusetts, that means that those conversations is happening because of him. And this, it's not only the case with ELLs or with education, but also with Puerto Rico, for example. Because right. he has helped, you know, bring... Raise that awareness. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, again... We can discuss the educational aspect, but I wanted to bring up, you know, the political aspect of this. I and think that's very important. It does help if we're going to discuss the old and new policy to <laughs> explain what the new policy Absolutely. is. Absolutely, yeah. So we probably just, should yeah. have begun yeah. with that. Yes. I mean, yeah. the old way, the change was we're not going to teach people in their native language. You're going to come in and we're going to do English and you sink or swim kind An of. An example, yeah. people who yeah. in high school, for example, would take in biology lessons mm -hmm. in English, mm -hmm. you know, and not their native language. And these are people with limited proficiency in English. And the new policy says you can be taught in both languages. Yeah, but I, this, was, right. this was my previous, right. like yes. in between being a journalist, this was my world. Mm -hmm. In the late 90s and around this time when it was banned, I was deep in national and local education policy regarding bilingual education and English language learners. And what's really bizarre about this, Callie, is at the time in the late 90s, there was clear research and basically said that if you're taught immersed in your native language and you're taught academic language in your native language, that transferring to English as an English language learner was going to be an easier transition. Because you're not trying to do two yeah, things. Yeah, in Massachusetts. Learn the subject matter the problem and is, learn the language. The problem right. with yeah. Massachusetts, yeah. with the Commonwealth around the 60s and the 70s, that is that the bilingual education started being identified with heritage and pride and culture. And it lost some of right. its research. And I saw that in classrooms. And then I would go to California and Texas where it was implemented correctly. And I'd see these English language learners who would be coming in in Spanish and learning their math in first and second grade, and then by eighth grade, they're English speakers and they're top performers. Mm -hmm. So it was working. It was definitely political at the time. I agree with Marcelo. There weren't any representative voices in 2001, 2002 who had political power to kind of say this is wrong. But here's the big shame of all this. A lot of kids got left. A lot of kids got left behind. So, wow, low graduation rates for English language mm -hmm. learners. What a surprise. Not shocking. Now this is going to happen. This bilingual ed is going to happen. And there's no teachers. Right. Because what happened. And, and I'm glad you brought that up. So let's just put a pause yeah. right there because I want you to hear. Uh, this is a piece from a WGBH story. I totally cute uh, for you. From, nice. uh, yes, thank you. By uh, Bianca Vasquez-Tones. And she's uh, a head of uh, WGBH News' education desk. English language learners are the fastest growing group of students in the state. As the state changes its policy to allow bilingual instruction, schools will likely also struggle to find teachers. The state doesn't keep track of how many teachers in the system speak other languages fluently. But here's one data point that helps to show the problem. During the 2014-2015 school year, nearly 9,000 people took the qualifying exam to teach in the state. Only 160 of the people who took the exam were native Spanish speakers, and a little over half of them passed. So now that's but the, the problem. reason being. Yeah. But here's the reason: yeah. Yeah. you banned it in 2002. Right. Of course. So all these education colleges, and I'm talking state university, like mm. the UMass system, they weren't being trained, so it was never a career option. And now all of a sudden, there's going to be a demand. And the supply of teachers is going to go. And then when you start like going, well, we're going to bring in teachers from Spain. I'm like, come on. Teachers from Spain. I mean, like, I love Spain. Yes. But like, you know, someone from Madrid is not going to know what a Honduran kid in East Boston 
the, the culture, like, you really need truly bilingual, bicultural people, and it needs to be a career option in the Commonwealth. And that's going to take a couple of years. The, Here, the here's bill what I'm passed. thinking. I, I'm thinking that because it has worked, as you pointed out, in California and Texas, we're going to end up, if they recruit properly, some with teachers from those areas. Yeah, but you know you what know? else is going to happen? You're going to see more dual immersion. You're going to see affluent communities start realizing this has happened in California. So, for example, like in San Francisco, you have all the Bay, the Silicon Valley English Anglo kids immersed in Spanish and dual language yeah. with the poorer, like, Latino kids. Here. And, and that's what's going to happen here. And the demand Which is... Makes sense. It's going to make sense. Mm-hmm. My concern is that there's not enough teachers. The quality is still not going to be there. It's going to take maybe... To be honest with you, I think it's going to take about 10 years until we get well, yeah, it yeah, right because now. it's like we took a huge step back, mm-hmm. and right now it's like starting from zero. Yeah, um, yeah. So that is, that is the unfortunate. So it's good news, bad news situation right. if right. you think about it. And I just hope a lot of kids don't get caught again. And uh, But I think what you're saying is right. Let me remind people that I'm in the studio with Julio Ricardo Varela, co-host of the In the Thick podcast and the founder of Latino Rebels and Latino USA contributor, and also Marcella Garcia, bilingual journalist and editorial writer, columnist and editor editorial board member for the Boston Globe. So now let's go to the next area where apparently Jeffrey Sanchez also has some influence. Yeah, and that's I mean, uh, with support. Uh, yes, that's with support of the aid to Puerto Rico and well, the awareness about what right. needs to happen from here. We should also note population of Puerto Ricans in Boston. Right. Ahead. Puerto Rican population in the United States, Massachusetts is the Number. fifth largest in the country, to so, give people some perspective. There is a lot going on with this, so mm-hmm. I want to just uh, put on the table that just last week, Senator Warren and uh, Senator Bernie Sanders put forward what they're calling a Marshall Plan mm-hmm. for Puerto Rico. They're asking for immediate relief, and they're asking for some debt relief. Lots of folks think they'll never happen in the form that they're presenting it now, not only because it's who they are, but also because of the massiveness, because $146 billion is what they're asking for. But uh, equal amount of people say, but it's going to push to get something going that makes more sense than the, the dribbles of a thousand here, a million here, because this is a massive problem. So that's one of the big things that's happening. Right. I mean, yeah. the other the other angle, of course, is local. And it's the yes. one that, I mean, at least I've been sort of like paying a little attention to. And, and the reason why I brought up Jeff Sanchez, is the state rep, is because, as you know, the way politics here works in Massachusetts, the Speaker of the House, the Senate President, the Governor... They have meetings every week, right? Mm-hmm. And so Jeff Sanchez is in those meetings now. And so he has been raising the issue, I'm told, of the influx, right? And so as of two days ago, apparently 1,400, 1400 students have already uh, arrived here in Massachusetts. And so there's, what can we do, right, as, as a state? You know, what kind of policies can we support and can we mm-hmm. advance to try to help this influx because it's coming you know it's it's been increasing week after week after week and there's talk for example speaking about education there's talk about changing licenses licensing and certification requirements for teachers to absorb some teachers from Mm. Massachusetts from Mm. Puerto Rico so things like that are already you know those talks are already happening and so those are things that I've been sort of watching because again there's already 1,400 kids here in Massachusetts school districts, mostly in Worcester, Springfield, 
Holyoke, New Bedford, Lawrence, right. Boston too. Right. So exactly. again, those are policies that we should also keep an eye out. Of. We should know Governor Baker's been supportive of this. Absolutely. You know, so, so, yes. So we're you know talking to about. To be fair. Yeah. Even right. if you go into right. like I believe like in in Logan, you'll see like welcome centers when people come in from from Puerto Rico, like yeah. when people. Um. But a couple of things on the local front. Yeah, it makes a huge difference. Jeffrey Sanchez has family. <laughs> like like he, I remember talking to him That's at right. the beginning. He couldn't yeah. even get in touch with his family. Right. So obviously this is deeply personal. I agree with Marcela in terms of this becoming more common, and especially on the school. If they're giving waivers to teachers and you're doing bilingual education, maybe you can do something. There's two birds with one stone. Um, I still think the awareness of the Puerto Rican community in Massachusetts has indeed grown. There's still a ton of work to be done because Puerto Rico is starting to lose some of the national attention, Mm -hmm. although the mayor of San Juan was on Colbert last Wednesday to give it some national attention. But that's why this Sanders-Warren bill, I I will give Senator Warren a lot of credit in this. She gets it. Mm -hmm. The Puerto Rican community has been very, very active politically advocating for the island and getting to elected officials in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And Senator Warren's a perfect example. Now, this just to talk about the $146 billion, because that's a complete message bill. By message bill being... It's not going to be, be, be realized, it's but, not you be realized the, but you get the but message. You, but yeah. it, it yeah. brings up the urgency. Right. It gets progressives understanding that Puerto Rico is an important issue because Senator Sanders said it and Senator Warren. So Puerto Rico is starting to get a little bit of, I think, national play in terms of the debt crisis, in terms of forgiveness of the crisis. It really does play well to the Wall Street vulture, what Warren and Sanders talk about. And it does have appeal. And remember, it's not just Massachusetts. This all goes back to, to paraphrase, you know, the, the late Tim Russert, Florida, Florida, Florida. Right. When you talk about 1,400 students going to Massachusetts from Puerto Rico, multiply well, it by 20, to, 30, right. 40 in yeah. Florida, in central Florida. And all these people are literally moving to Florida right now. They might go back to Puerto Rico. They might not. But this is all for 2018 and 2020. I just want to point out the bill co-sponsors, the one that's the message bill, as you pointed out, is uh, our senators, Ed Markey, also of mm-hmm. Massachusetts, uh, Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut, the Virgin Islands delegate to the Congress, Democratic Representative Stacey Plaskett, Representative Nidia Velasquez of New York, and Representative Darren Soto of Florida. Right. So we're going to be hearing more about the Boricua, right? We're going to know, we're gonna yeah, know what that is, Kelly, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to point out that MEMA has shipped donations to Puerto Rico, and there's another North Andover, Massachusetts company, Revision Energy, that is providing help uh, with solar power, which could obviously be huge if they could get this grid situation tackled down there, because that's a massive thing. So moving on, Luis Gutierrez um, (laughs) decided to retire, and the way he did it is very odd. People may be asking, why are we talking about him? Because he's from Illinois. He's been a huge voice in Congress on a number of issues. And we're going to explain why the way that he has announced his retirement is weird. But so first, let's hear from him. This is Representative Luis Gutierrez announcing his decision to retire from Congress and not seek reelection. He is a Democrat representing Illinois, and he was elected in 1993. I am going to leave Congress at the end of my term in 2019, but I'm not retiring. I'm not giving up on the fight for equality for immigrants, for Latinos, for women, for fighting for LGBT community, the environment, racial justice. 
or the whole range of progressive issues I've been fighting for for over 25 years in Congress. Okay, well, let me just quote this from Politico, which I thought this was amazing. (laughs) They say, in one fell swoop, the veteran congressman managed to upend the city's congressional delegation, remake the 2019 mayoral race that would be in Chicago, and set off a domino effect on local offices. Because when he stepped down, he did it without giving anybody time to announce that they might run uh, for his position, and he immediately identified his successor, the guy who interestingly, ran against Rahm Emanuel the last time around. Chewy Garcia. I think the way that (laughs) happened is so sneaky. I mean, everybody does it, right? Everybody tries to game the system system in a way, you know, that favors your party. I get that. But still, it left me with a really bad taste. Not to mention, you know, that he's been a great champion for immigration rights, a great voice on Puerto Rico, obviously. So it was very, very unexpected. And, And so honest to God, and there's absolutely no, you know, no reason for me to say this, but the first thing I thought was like, why is he resigning? Mm. You know, is he like, are we going to learn something about him, <laughs> you know, given the mo- the cultural moment that yeah. we, you know, and again, I'm not, I have not heard a single thing, but it is a very suspect move at a time when it's a cultural moment, which our attention to issues of, you know, sexual harassment mm-hmm. and everything. And again, I want to repeat that I have not. But we no, don't know no anything. To say yeah. this. Don't know I have anything. no reason to say but this. But it caused you to be skeptical. That was my first thought. Yeah. And again, in the second. And then it was like, you know, why did he have to do it this way? You know, like I, I well, have nothing this, against Trey Garcia. Right. But this is not good for democracy, I, obviously. I have some so. theories. Go ahead. All right. So there's a couple. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Number one, Marcella mentioned he's perhaps the top national voice on Puerto Rico ever. Yeah. And he's been right He's well loved mm-hmm. and also well hated mm-hmm. on the island for mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. There is speculation in the local Puerto Rican press the past week that he was con- he's considering a run for governor of Puerto Rico in 2024. Mm. He's a pro-independence guy. And what's happened in the hurricane there's been a serious discussion in Puerto Rico in the hurricane response about, like, you know, what's our relationship and, like, this federal aid and this Trump and the paper towels and, like, you know, we're not really getting the respect. So there's it's kind of reawoken a little bit of that discussion. So that's theory one. Theory two is that I've talked to him. I've known Gutierrez for a while. I know mm-hmm. I know his office. He's tired. Yeah. He thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. He thought he was going to get something in this next deal. It didn't happen. And he's fighting Trump again. And he's, you know, he's considered one of the top national Latino voices in politics, especially on immigration reform, because he he earned a lot of respect for speaking out against President Obama. He's speaking out for Trump. He's been doing it for a long time. He could be really exhausted. Now, he endorsed Cook County Commissioner Jesus Chewy Garcia. Will Chewy be the new... I don't think Chewy has. The, I don't think Chewy has the person. I know Chewy, and here's yeah. the other thing. You know there's I mean. another yeah. progressive that yeah. I know. I also know very well, Carlos mm-hmm. Ramirez Rosa, who's the alderman, who's a city like a city councilor, as right. they say. And he got shut out. And he's a Bernie progressive. Right. And I think there's this. This is one of the most iconic Latino congressional districts in the United States. This is going to be a battle, and I think the Chewy Garcia. He definitely does not have the personality of someone like Luis Gutierrez. 
It's a big loss. It's a big shift in Latino politics in the United States. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Julio Ricardo Varela, he with the theories of the In the Thick podcast, <laughs> Latino USA, I got theories, Callie. <laughs> and Latino Ravels, and Marcella Garcia of the Boston Globe. And we're talking about the Latinx news you may have missed. So connected loosely with Guterres's retirement, I'm thinking about that because he's been such a voice and been out in front about it, all things immigration, and he's been a voice for the Dreamers and DACA. And we're sort of up against the time, we, I say, the folks that are trying to get a fix right. in Congress, fix President Trump saying dissolving the program as it was and saying there's six months for Congress to get it together to figure out something that would be a permanent program. Lindsey Graham and Dick Durbin, uh, Lindsey Graham, who's a Republican, South Carolina, Dick Durbin from Illinois, who was a Democrat, came together, have a bill, a new Dream Act, can't get any traction. But now, because there's probably a fight about government shutdown, they may be able to do a trade to say, hey, we'll bring some people over to support that, keep the government going, but you guys need to sign off on this DREAM Act. Any chance of that happening? And it has to happen by December, which is why we're talking about it. I doubt it. Mm -hmm. I doubt it 100%. Unfortunately, and obviously I decry this, but I, I just have no confidence that this is going to be the issue that Democrats are going to fight for to like the end, you know, there's the tax bill, there's yeah. uh, these other things, and so again, unfortunately, we're going to get lost. Yeah. I di- I disagree. Oh, completely. You. Oh, okay. And doing my reporting and talking to people in D.C. and talking to congressional offices, both on the right and on the left, there is this very distinct possibility that we might see some type of move. movement. For a shutdown. I hope you're right. And the reason and I say that provides it, the leverage. The reason yeah. I say mm-hmm. is someone like Lindsey Graham, mm-hmm. who said anything's possible, mm-hmm. when it, is someone like Lindsey Graham going to put his political stake on the line for a new Clean Dream Act? And so far, he has said everything right. Let's see what happens when push comes to shove. But Luis Gutierrez said on Morning Joe earlier this week when he was talking about his quote unquote retirement that he's very hopeful and there's a deal in place. I've talked to immigration rights advocates in the know who have taken this strategy and said a Clean Dream Act is quite possible. We will see. I mean, there's been a lot of brokering and there's been a lot of, like, visits to congressional offices. But that's not I, new, Julio. I mean, I'm I, just saying I, what I'm I've... Julio's I'm, more hopeful. Yes, yeah. and I'm, I'm, just more skeptical. What, I'm, just I'm saying, more skeptical. I'm just saying what I've heard from congressional offices. And I've heard offices. it too, yeah. and, and I've been hearing it for, yeah. you know, I, for To how... me, this feels a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and Lindsey Graham has always been for a Clean Dream Act. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I guess it's going to come down to exactly what they really want, in which hill they want, they're, they're willing to die on. Mm-hmm. And, and, That's and, right. and, I, and Democrats... I that goes for both, right? And mm. so I'm perhaps more cynical than you are, and I hope you're right, actually, but I just don't see it. And maybe, again, maybe you're right. We have one month. Less and, than a month, really. Less than a month. Mm-hmm. And there's the tax bill right now that is, first of all, is lacking serious media right. coverage. And second, it kind of looks like it can happen, which yeah, would it's be probably gonna happen. You know, catastrophic. So right. anyway, I hope you're right. I just um, think that maybe the only, I think you're right about determining the hill that anybody will die on politically because yeah. everything is so politicized now. But yeah, this yeah. is one of the areas that had always been able to to garner some kind of and even yet a nothing name has only happened, though. bipartisan like people keep support. Saying that. I know. People keep saying that this is true. the issue That's that true. they actually agree on. I know. It's 
I don't and know. Yet, yeah. You know, but again. just so it depends on whether they want to end the year and exactly. say we accomplished something and it was positive and we did it together exactly. and blah blah blah. Exactly. So we'll see. Right. Let me switch gears and say here's something that's really positive. Coco. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, number 1 at the box office. Coco for people who are not paying attention is Pixar's new animated film. It's uh, set during Mexico's Dia de los Muertos celebration and it's gotten all kinds of great reviews that never means anything necessarily, but it also has gotten a great box office. It's visually arresting, it's exciting. It was not impacted thus far by the guy who was the head of Pixar having to step down for sexual misconduct. So first Let's take a listen to a cut from the movie. This is where 12-year-old Miguel speaks to a mariachi as he shines the musician's shoes. Miguel's grandmother witnesses the exchange and confronts them both with a notorious disciplining tool, the chancla, a slipper. They're setting up for tonight, the music competition for Dia de Muertos. You want to be like your hero? You should sign up. Uh-uh. My family would freak. Look, if you're too scared, then well, have fun making shoes. Come on, what did De La Cruz always say? Seize your moment? Show me what you got, muchacho. <laughs> Miguel! <gasps> ah! Abuelita! What are you doing here? Um, uh, you leave my grandson alone! Doña, please! I was just getting a shine! <laughs> I know your tricks, mariachi! <laughs> it sounds so cute. And I really was not aware of the background of it. So now I'm going to go see it. So already well, they got more money coming. I mean, you, you said it earlier that, that you don't think or you don't know how much it matters, whether it was a good weekend for the box office. It's huge. Yeah, it's, oh, no, it's huge. It's huge. And the reviews. No, no, I mean, it didn't matter about the reviews, but the box office. And it's a top-grossing film. Yeah. The other thing, yes. it's a top-grossing yeah. film in the history of Mexico. Yes. It's historic. It's I mean, it's, it's a landmark movie, seriously. And, and not only that, but when you see the context, obviously, you know, the moment that the backdrop of this movie, it's quite amazing. It's almost like this gift for Latinos, like Julio said, not only here, but also in Mexico. Like the movie opened first in Mexico, yes, actually, and did about a month great, ago. As Julio said. Did amazing. Yeah. And so it's historic. A couple of things that people should know why we're talking about it. First of all, it's the story of a 12 year old Mexican boy who wants to be a troubadour. And as you've heard, his grandmother is not so impressed. <laughs> this is Pixar's 19th film. The guy wow. who was the overarching thought person on this and dreamer of the story is a white guy. And he was concerned that he didn't mess this up. We, so he did we the talked good to him, stuff. Yeah, so we, yeah. we talked to it. We actually uh, <laughs> talked to him on Latino USA. We did a piece on Coco and Disney in Latin America. What's interesting about all this, I don't know if a lot of people know this history. Lee Uncrich. Lee Uncrich. Mm-hmm. Yes. But I think it was 2012, 2013, mm-hmm. where Disney tried to trademark Dia yep. de los yes. Muertos. Yeah, los muertos. Mm-hmm. Um, the expression. And mm-hmm. our friend, uh, my friend and cartoonist, Lalo Alcaraz, did this like Muerto Mouse parody. And the Chicano community and the Mexican-American community and the Latino community in the United States was like, why would Disney want to copyright this? This is our trademark it. And they removed the trademark. And it kind of woke them up. To be like, mm, maybe we should actually talk to people that know it and like have a cultural connection and a which is what he did. His, and I, which I, is what I, he did. I want to give them credit because a and lot they, of Disney films and they do did. not. So yeah. we, t- you know, yeah. and 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 <laughs> so you take like someone like Lalo Alcaraz, who was perhaps he has a history of criticizing Disney, like with his cartoons, it's hilarious. Mm-hmm. And then he becomes a creative consultant on this movie. I encourage people to look at the reactions that people are getting on social media. There's pieces about it. I read one that a little boy, and he said, wow, 
Pixar got brown right, oh, finally. Brown yeah. is beautiful. Yeah. And this was an 11-year-old boy. Yeah. And so those are the stories that, like, you're seeing, like, these authentic reactions. And you see these, like, there's another picture of a Latino family, and they there's, like, 30 people that went to the movies oh, together. Yeah. Like, one in four movie ticket goers in the United States right now are Latino. And so this proves the, the theory that... If you give them something that's really well done, you're going to make money, and, and this is what happened. And I have to say this. This is two other things that I love about it. It's a nearly all-Latino cast, because one cannot assume just because the story is that that will happen. Right. So I'm appreciative of that. And they go in and out of untranslated Spanish, what I call Juno Diazation. <laughs> because in his work, he just right. writes the Spanish, right. and you can get it in the context or you can look it up, but he does not explain. It's, right. not, you know? it's not foreign. It's it's, it's no, just, it's just it's a just part, of cult, life. part of life. He goes back and forth. Right. He's in English. He's, and he's you normalized know, you know. This, this back and forth right. that we yeah. all do, you know, and it's not quite Spanglish, but it's like this back and forth that you go, you know, Spanish and English. Right. So he doesn't need to explain it because it's normal. And exactly. it is normal. And, and I think that everybody will get the context of it. If you don't, you can look it up sure. afterwards. And sure. it's great for kids and it's a wonderful story and it's animated and and so everybody's excited about it. All the folks who work on and think about story and right. the way one uses culture mm-hmm. appropriately, not cultural appropriation, right, but, right. but a yeah. appropriate use of culture. Right. And then to have a great box office just as the icing on the cake. Yeah, right. it validates yeah. The, this, right. this type this of movie. Every, every, right. Totally. Marcella yeah. talked about representation mattering at the beginning of this conversation. This yeah. is another example. Yeah. It really mm-hmm. is. Now, speaking of representation, we have a few seconds to get to Mr. Cora, Alex Cora. <laughs> Alex Cora. Uh, at the Red Sox. Manager He's of the Red a Sox. new manager. We have to say something about that. Again, because big, big, huge news. Historic. Huge. huge. News. Yeah. Historic. Red Sox. First Latino manager in the history of the Boston Red Sox. Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. I wrote a piece for ESPN about, like, for the Puerto Rican community, given the context of Hurricane Maria, like, this is a moment of celebration to have Alex Cora, a native of Caguas, Puerto Rico, where my family's from, this is a historic Boston moment that just got downplayed in the white male sports media atmosphere that surrounds us in this city. And I'm really glad like that I had the opportunity to write for ESPN and Marcella the Boston Globe mm, wrote a, right. you know the the editorial department like this is an important moment and we need to acknowledge it because when you have a city that is getting more and more Latino and to see Alex Cora become the manager of the Boston Red Sox is amazing. It's a nod to all the fans, you know, the mm-hmm. Latino fans that have been going to Fenway Park mm-hmm. for yeah. years, for years, for years, in huge numbers. Mm-hmm. And so... And it, about how many players there exactly, are. Exactly. I was going to say, yeah, yes. Yeah. I mean, since the 70s, mm-hmm. right? So it, it's a great moment. And, and yes, it, it totally got downplayed in the media and the sports media and the Boston sports media, which is, you know, uh, <laughs> I wonder why. Is, <laughs> right. And so, but, but it's true. Yeah. It's um, in, among the Latino community it was, it was big and, and I'm sure we're going to be talking about this a lot more, you know, once the season starts, mm. but it matters. I mean, it's going to matter, you know, in, how he manages the players, you know, because there's obviously a lot of bilingual players there. He can speak to them in their language. That's huge. Mm-hmm. So great news. And I just have to say, I appreciate somebody who says, as he did, I am very qualified for this job. I am competent. I'm one of the competent managers. So I have that. But I am also... Puerto Rican. Yeah, I'm yeah. also. He's, he's one of the first you know, families of baseball in Puerto Rico too. Like this is yeah. a huge 
deal. I appreciate how the Red Sox are responding to him, and we'll see how the season yeah. goes. And I don't even care for sports, but I may have to pay attention now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so thank you all for joining me this week. Thank you, Kelly, for having us. Julio Ricardo Varela is the co-host of the In the Thick podcast, a contributor to Latino USA and the founder of Latino Rebels. And Marcela Garcia is a bilingual journalist and editorial writer, columnist, and editorial board member for the Boston Globe. Coming up, Mike Birbiglia, Sarah Silverman, Hassan Minaj, all comics with highly rated comedy specials on Netflix and HBO. But the comedy business is a sobering reality for many of these top comics, as well as the aspiring comedians hoping to be as successful. In his new book, Behind the Laughs, Community and Inequality in Comedy, author Michael Jeffries pulls back the curtain on the comedy industry. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. It's no secret that I spend a lot of time doubled over with laughter watching comedy specials on cable and following the careers of comics who got their start on NBC's Last Comic Standing and Saturday Night Live. Millions of comedy fans like me have made the best-known funny men and women some of the biggest names in show business. But as author Michael Jeffries has documented, it takes much more than talent to make it in comedy. He has detailed the challenges and obstacles in his new book, Behind the Laughs, Community and Inequality in Comedy. Michael Jeffries is an associate professor in American Studies at Wellesley College and Under the Radar's pop culture contributor. His research focuses on race, class, gender, and cultural production. Welcome back, Michael. Thanks for having me. So you've been examining issues of community and inequality across the board for many years, many cultural arenas. Why did you decide to look at comedy? I think it's a really important time for comedy. When I started writing the book, it was sort of right around the transition of The Daily Show when we were moving from Jon Stewart to Trevor Noah. And we know that so many people have been getting their news about politics and world events from programs like The Daily Show. So as a resource just for kind of living in the world, it was becoming increasingly popular. And that's one thing that I was uh, sort of hooked on. And the other thing is that the business of comedy is changing dramatically where we have these massive theaters like Second City and the Upright Citizens Brigade making tons of money hand over foot. You have stand-up exploding on cable television and on other platforms like Netflix. And the business is, in some ways, never been better for the creators and the artists themselves, but in other ways, serious barriers remain. I want to take a listen to some of the most successful folks in the business. We just put together a few clips of some comedians who people may know their names and who are just the best of the business. So let's take a listen. When you're broke, everything is just low to the ground. You know, like you (laughs) roll off your air mattress in the morning, grab pants from the floor. cook noodles on a hot plate. One falls out of your mouth, you're like, it's not too far. They photographed me once, and this was the headline. Schumer buys pastry so she can work out. Kind of mean, right? No, they hit the nail right on the head. That's what I do to work out. 
kid. Fellas, you ever been going through some hard times with your woman? You lose your job or something, and your woman tries to console you. Say, hey, baby, don't worry. We're going to get through this. We're going to get through this. I know we got some bills, but if we got to get rid of some of this shit, we will get rid of some of this shit. She's talking about you. <laughs> so that's Mike Berbiglia. Amy Schumer and Chris Rock at the top of their game and their stand-ups. You spend a lot of time looking at stand-up, particularly as a vehicle for people to get across their thoughts about our world, really. And that's what I, I'm interested in, is how what looking at it through the prism of community and inequality, what comedy says about us and to us. I think one thing that it's really important to note is that, you know, comedy's been around for a long time, and in many respects, its function hasn't changed at all, right? Comics are there because we have all these things that we're embarrassed about, we're afraid to say out loud in the company of our friends or our colleagues at work, and comedians serve that role for us. They tell us kind of ugly truths about our world and about ourselves. And then one of the other things I learned about writing the book is what comedy shows us is that the business itself, the business of comedy, is kind of a microcosm or a smaller example of a lot of our other beliefs about meritocracy and what it takes to kind of make it in this country and really in life. The principle that if you work hard, you'll be paid for your work is one that we all want to believe in, but their experiences in the business really kind of reveal the problems with accepting that narrative without any kind of critical thinking. Well, I want you to read an excerpt from your book. This is one that focuses on privilege and power. For studio executives, screenwriters, and performers, privilege and power are literally inscribed on the body and woven into the voice via race, gender, and class differences. Comedic performers do not craft their persona in a vacuum. They are affected by industry conventions, audience demand, and perception of consumers' taste, all of which ultimately dictate their professional fate. For these reasons, comedic labor needs to be studied with explicit reference to social power. Uncertainty, exploitative labor conditions, and a work life subject to taste trends situate comedians alongside other types of artists and cultural workers. But in other respects, comedy is a very different sort of endeavor from those in industries like fashion and visual arts because it is so intensely social. Performance is a fluid exchange between performer and audience, not a one-way consumption of an inanimate object, such as a painting or a piece of clothing. So you're saying that even though a lot of the privilege and power issues that you've talked about across the board in other arenas show up differently in comedy. There's no question, because the place to start, right, is we want to place comedy in the context of other kinds of performance art and other kinds of art consumption, where you go out, you see something you like, and based on your taste, you buy it. But that's not really what's going on here, because the product you're buying in comedy is a living, breathing person, a human being that's selling their personality and, and selling their persona and their public image. So in order to sell that image, they have to circulate back and forth between the business side of it and their relationship with you. They're crafting one kind of relationship with the audience based on what they think you might like. Then they have to craft a whole other set of relationships with their coworkers, with executives who might give them spots on television and film. And in the course of crafting those relationships, they're subject to all the same kinds of stereotypes and anxieties that we are, right? Assumptions about who you are and what you're capable of based on where you're from and what you look like. Often, though, we hear those comics of color and or women, because that's two groups that you specifically pay attention to, make fun of that or address that on stage, or they seem to make fun of it anyway. You kind of have two feelings about that, whether that's a co-opting or 
something fresh. Oh, I think it's, it's, <laughs> it's one of the most fascinating parts of the book because one of the major differences between the white men I spoke with and the women and people of color, including women of color that I spoke with, is that for many of these people who are not white men, they see it as part of their job, if they're going to be in front of mostly white audiences, to sort of disarm the stereotypes or acknowledge the stereotypes right from the beginning, almost in a preemptive kind of way, poking fun of themselves or acknowledging that they're not white men in some way, talking about the way they look, talking about the way they speak, to kind of get on the same page of the audience. And it's a remarkable skill. It's a really valuable skill to have as a comic. But the expectation that they have to do that is something that's really broken with the business because it's really forcing them to perform their job and do their act in a way that white male comics never have to worry about. They're sort of given the benefit of the doubt from the very beginning. I want to play a little montage we put together from some of the women on Saturday Night Live. Many people may know if they study comedy or pay attention that the women on Saturday Night Live have always had a struggle to maintain characters, to get enough airtime. So here are some successful excerpts. This is uh, some of the female stars, Molly Shannon as Sally O'Malley, Tina Fey as Sarah Palin, and Rachel Dratch as Debbie Downer, which is a very famous skit. Rachel, by the way, is from Massachusetts. We also hear the voices of Amy Poehler and her guest host, Lindsay Lohan, in the last skit. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Sally O'Malley. I'm proud to say that I'm 50 years old. I'm not one of those gals who's afraid to tell her real age, and I like to kick, stretch, and kick. I'm 50, 50 years old. They, they stomp on our necks and say, what's the big deal? Take a chill pill, Jill. But we're mad. We've been had. And we're not so glad, quoth the Lorax. <laughs> I want to see the country bear jamboree. Ooh. I want to go to every country in Epcot and greet them in their own native language. Hola, konnichiwa, hi. <laughs> Did you guys hear about that train explosion in Northern <laughs> Media is so secretive. <laughs> So, Michael, I picked those three clips for a reason. Molly Shannon's going right at the age thing, right at the beginning. So that's the part that you're talking about disarming. Of course, we know Tina Fey made hay from imitating Sarah Palin. So that's kind of a slightly different, but it got her a lot of airtime and, and quite a bit of respect. And Rachel Dretch has written extensively. In fact, I've interviewed her about fighting for airtime. And the one character that stood out was, of course, one that made a woman look kind of sad, Debbie Downer. It still exists. People know, if you say Debbie Downer, they know where it came from. So it's interesting to see how these women have tried to make their space in an otherwise quite male-dominated world. There's no question about it. And some of what we've heard coming out of the business side, specifically from SNL, there was a recent controversy around the casting of black women, Sashir Zamata, and others who have been on the show, right, Leslie Jones, and their inability to find black women who, quote-unquote, were ready for the show, right? And just that way of thinking about it as if the problem is with the talent pool rather than the show's ability to provide a good working space and to trust in the ideas of the contributions of black women and women more broadly, that's part of the question. The whole mindset of readiness of the performer rather than the patterns and practices of the show, that's one of the things I argue needs to change in the book. And just back to that point, Samir 
was added to the cast to be a performer. But Leslie Jones had been there as a part of the staff as a writer. And she, of course, is trying to write different kinds of sketches than might appear on the show. And so there is that struggle with what you call narrative having certain kinds of meaning and value in comedy. So it makes people say, well, is that good taste or will people find it funny, I guess is the way to put it. Yes, no question. And, And what's troubling about this is, right, no one would, I think, dispute whether or not these women have talent. So from a purely sort of meritocratic, talent-based perspective, the problem can't be reduced to that. It's what roles are they being allowed to play and imagined in, right? What's the kind of imagination of the executives and producers who are reaching down and plucking some people from the writer's room, lifting them up and putting them on screen and making them stars? If those executives can't imagine that career arc for those writers, the opportunities just aren't going to be there. So how do you answer the question, well, you know, I just know what's funny. You can't really tell me. I just sort of know what's funny. And some things may not be funny to me, but others will kill for certain folks. I mean, and I'm listening to what the comics say, and it may appeal to me on one level. And on another, I may have a different kind of resonance. So I'm going to give you an example. I just love and have quoted many times this scene from Seinfeld who some people would say is the whitest, whitest comic out there, okay? So this is a clip from Jerry Seinfeld's iconic show in which Jerry and his friend Elaine, and that's actress Julie Louis-Dreyfus, are trying to rent a car. Oh, Carol, I'm sorry. We have no midsize available at the moment. I don't understand. I made a reservation. Do you have my reservation? Yes, we do. Unfortunately, we ran out of cars. But the reservation keeps the car here. That's why you have the reservations. I know why we have reservations. I don't think you do. (laughs) If you did, I'd have a car. (laughs) So you know how to take the reservation, you just don't know how to hold the reservation. And that's really the most important part of the reservation, the holding. Anybody can just take it. I can laugh about that. I can hear it over and over and laugh about it. It's all of who he is. It's very observational about day-to-day things. It's certainly, quote-unquote, universal, which is something that comics of color and women have to try to achieve universality to get comic response from the rest of us, or so they're told. And yet I'm aware that the way that Jerry is in terms of how he views comedy and what he brings to it and what other comics may bring who are not like him is very well, it used to be a little problematic for me because he had this series, he has a series called uh, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. And he was asked, why don't you have, initially he had no persons of color. I don't even, can't even remember a woman right off. And he said, well, I, you know, I don't know why I have to answer that because it's really about who's funny, as if these other people aren't funny. So, Michael, how do you speak back to Jerry Seinfeld when he made that statement? So I think there are a couple (laughs) of different ways to go at it. I mean, one is just to start with the idea that you kind of know what's funny when you hear it. And we have these ideas that some forms of humor are truly universal. Even in that clip, which I think is something that we can all relate to, and that's one of my favorite clips as well from the show, (laughs) if you break that clip down, he's really talking about a very limited set of experiences, right? Because he's talking about the experiences of people who rent cars, frequently or make reservations frequently, which implies a certain level of class standing and privilege. So right there, he's kind of limiting himself to an audience that you don't see if you're part of the audience, but he is kind of making a distinction that's based on social and economic class. 
Assuming what universal is. Exactly, right? Mm -hmm. He's assuming Mm -hmm. that universal means Mm -hmm. I have the power to rent a car and I have the sort of sense of self-importance to talk back to someone, (laughs) right? That's a real real, uh, uh, issue for many people who don't know they can question people who are working for them in the service industry or working with them in the service industry. That's one piece of it. On the diversity question, I mean, Seinfeld has spoken out multiple times about this. I mean, one of the things he said that I quoted in the book was he said, well, comedy doesn't have to be like the census, right? He's not looking for diversity. He's interested in funny, not diversity, right? And there's no question that that's something that is a view that's shared by very widely mm-hmm. among his colleagues, right? That they want to talk about being funny first. But Seinfeld's actually a really interesting example because as he progressed in that show, he had to develop a different skill set from the one that he had on stage. He had to take his material as a stand-up and turn it into something that was fit for television. And the show improved from the first season until what it was by the time it went off the air. And what it points to is that you need to have training to do this sort of thing well. Like any other job, if you want to be a professional, you have to train at it. And access to training is circumscribed by a whole bunch of things. Money, time, the social connections that you need in order to get on stage maybe at a comedy club where a booker is going to book things not only based on whether or not you're funny, but whether or not he likes you. All of those things introduce a range of factors, offstage factors, that influence whether somebody can make it to the top of the comedy business or not. And I think Seinfeld would admit to that, admit to the fact that he wasn't as good of an actor or a screenwriter at the beginning of the show, as he was when he finished. And it's because he was allowed time to develop, and he was invested in financially by NBC. That kind of investment, that kind of time to develop, that's a privilege. And once you're talking about privilege, you're talking about power. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guest is Michael Jeffries, Wellesley College professor and author of Behind the Laughs, Community and Inequality in Comedy. It's our December selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. So, Michael, what you've just mentioned, and you talk about training, it would have given me pause before reading your book. People saying, training? How do you get training to be funny and different? Well, there are actually training groups. You think of the Groundlings, Second City, and Almost entire casts of those organizations exist now either in in network television and cable, those situation comedies, and on Saturday Night Live. Part of it is that they're going through these programs and then executives know that these people have received a certain kind of training and understand the kind of rules of the business. But part of it is that when someone from your class, let's say, from Second City makes it and gets a pilot, and they're looking to cast a role that's, you know, just kind of a bit player, they're going to be thinking about, well, who do I know from my class at Second City that would be great for this part? Because there are thousands of people across the country that could play this bit part, but they want someone they have a previous relationship with and someone they can trust. What that means is the classes serve a bigger function than just training comedians to be funny. They provide space where people make friendships and where people gain trust with their coworkers and a whole set of social networking happens in those spaces. So it's not just about acquiring the skills, it's about building your social network just like you do in every other industry. I learned in your book that there are 
white houses of comedy and black houses of comedy. You know, that's a kind of loose binary because it also includes other other persons of color. So people don't necessarily cross over that what you've just described in terms of this training sometimes falls down on the line of who went to college and who didn't. But here we have a situation like Kevin Hart. It's not a situation, but he's risen to the top of the comedy chain doing what could arguably be described as a very specific kinds of observation about his own experiences, which would be far from a Jerry Seinfeld's. Let's just take a listen to Kevin Hart, and he's discussing why, in this clip, why thugs don't actually do well in fights in his comedy special, Seriously Funny. Thugs always got to give you a speech before they fight. You ever see how long it takes a thug to fight? You got to give you his whole background before he fight. It takes too long. Yeah, real all day. Just me, by myself, on the block, holding it down, getting my waist, straight face. All day, not a day, in jail, by myself. One bed, no pillowcase, one pillow. Didn't nobody write me, it was early. Woke up, went back to sleep, took a nap. You ever go night-night, You ever go night-night, What? What does this have to do with the fight? Are we fighting or not? You didn't write me, I don't know you. That's a scream. I mean, I think anybody would find it funny, but you point out that's very specific experience he's sharing there. Oh, no question. And Mm -hmm. I think one of the interesting things that a number of black comics talked about was how when they make the choice, especially in Chicago, I spent a lot of time in Chicago talking to comedians, when they make the choice to go from performing on the south side and the west side of Chicago up to the north side, which is where the second city and other predominantly white clubs are located, there's a real social distance there where like their friends are not going to come and see them on the north side where they're going to be expected if they're stepping into a sketch role in Second City, they may be typecast by the person directing the sketch or asked to play a kind of quote-unquote ghetto character because they assume that's the kind of performance that black comics will be most familiar with. That's a common, common experience. And the issue is, right, you could almost say that it's good for their career to develop these different skill sets and playing to different audiences because it makes them versatile and that versatility helps them. But on the other hand, it's a double standard because white comics never face the pressure to play in front of all black audiences or all Hispanic audiences. So the standards in terms of what counts as being qualified are really different. Or even what counts as being funny. No question. Though I will note that I looked at the list of top Netflix and HBO comedy specials right now. These are stand-up specials. And it includes... A South Asian comic, yeah. uh, Hassan Minaj. It includes Al Madrigal, who's Latino. It includes Sarah Silverman, who's been around a while, but she's, you know, a woman and she had to fight for her space. So it's an interesting variety. Of course, there's plenty of white guys. There's Mike Berbiglia, uh, Neil Brennan, Norm MacDonald. They're still on that list. But it's just very interesting to see. So here's the question. So you've written this book about community and inequality. Why does it matter that we pay attention to this in comedy? This is where we go to escape. You know, it's a little bit of a kind of an echo for the football controversy where people say, I don't want to talk about politics. I don't want to think about these issues. I just want to watch the game. Can I just laugh with whomever I find funny? Why do I have to think about bigger issues and and why does it matter? So Hassan Minaj is actually a great example. Hassan is now a correspondent for The Daily Show. I interviewed him for the book years ago before he became Hassan Minaj in all caps, right? (laughs) And when I interviewed him, I mean, he was talking about the same set of things that he always felt like there was a ceiling on how far he could go in the business. He said something like, I could never be cast as Iron Man. Best I could hope for would be like Iron Man's scientist assistant, right? Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. sort of thing, right? Yeah. And it took a while for 
someone in the business to take a chance with someone like Hassan. And it's not coincidental that The Daily Show was the place to do it. You mentioned Madrigal as another example. Madrigal was also a Daily Show correspondent. But the point is this. When we invest in comedians who we don't think have the kind of broad appeal to quote-unquote mainstream audience, what we learn are two things. Number one, that the niche audiences for someone like Hassan Minaj's brand of comedy, and he talks about his experience as coming from an immigrant family, that's central to his comic identity. We find out that that niche audience is much, much bigger than we thought it was. And by we, I mean executives, right? We've been underestimating the hunger and the number of consumers who want Hassan Minaj to be a star. That's one thing. And the flip side of that is the assumption that because it's based on immigrant experiences, the rest of America isn't going to relate to it. That's just been proven false, right? And that's why it's important because we as, in addition to the justice stuff, we as consumers are losing out. We're losing out on so much great comedy because executives are afraid to take chances on people whose comedy seems a little bit too specific, a little too black, a little too queer, a little too feminist, right? That kind of way of thinking has to go. It's bad for business and it's bad for our sense of social justice. It's bad for the artists themselves. Is it going? I think it is. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that's helping usher it out the door is that we have more platforms for consuming comedy. You mentioned Netflix is one Mm -hmm. such platform, Hulu, another one, right? So that's one piece of it. I think that the structure of the business is changing. So I think in that respect, it is. But if you look at the club scene and the training centers like Second City, the roots of the problem in those spaces can be a lot deeper because they're impacted right from the get-go by the demographics of the people who sign up for the classes. So now what you're seeing is theaters like Second City have fellowship programs for people from underrepresented groups because they recognize the problem of what happens when you keep getting the same kind of person through the door. It makes the product stale and it doesn't advance the art form. So they see that there's a problem there that won't just be solved at the top level with the explosion of Netflix and the democratization of distributors. So last question, your book is called Community and Inequality in Comedy. Let's say the next 10 years, what do you expect to see happening in comedy? I think we're going to see more of the same. It's going to be impossible to put the toothpaste back in the bottle with respect to this streaming stuff because it's proven to be so lucrative for the artists who feel freed up to make the kind of content they want to and also for the providers. But I think the flip side of it is that some of the money in that corner of the business is going to dry up. So our choices as consumers are going to continue to grow wider and wider, but artists trying to make a living are not going to be able to survive just doing that one thing. And this tradition of hustling in more than one form of comedy is going to become really commonplace, I think, for comedians. The people I talk to in my book, they do voiceovers for cartoon characters, and they do their own web series, and they go out on the, on the road and tour. That was never the case two, three generations ago. Your goal was just to be a touring comic on the road, and that was it. So I think the kind of gig economy has made its way into comedy and is good for consumers, but the struggle for artists is going to continue. Thank you very much, Michael Jeffries. Michael Jeffries is an associate professor in American Studies at Wellesley College and Under the Radar's pop culture contributor. His latest book, Behind the Laughs, Community and Inequality in Comedy, is our December selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org slash UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. 
be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Andrea Aswai is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. Thank you.